Welcome to the Nourished and Nurturing Podcast for two holistic-minded moms with a passion for real food and raising healthy, empowered children. We want to provide a safe and educational, judgment-free zone for supporting women as they journey into motherhood and discover the mom they were meant to be. I'm Marissa of Confidently Balanced. I'm a former speech-language pathologist turned nutritional therapy practitioner and have a passion for all things health, wellness, and mindset. I'm also a mama to a little guy with a big personality. And I'm Michelle. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner student. I have a degree in Thai massage and a master's in business analytics. I'm a mama to a little one and have another one on the way. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical concern. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to introduce our guests for today. They are both licensed acupuncturists, and we're going to be talking about female health and fertility from an Eastern medicine perspective. So I am joined by Eric Baker. Eric Baker has been practicing Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and herbal medicine for two decades. He has primarily worked in hospitals, including with many HIV patients throughout Cook County as a part of the University of Chicago health system. He has taught Chinese medicine for 15 years through Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, National University of Health Sciences, and has his own series of continuing education courses. His background is in psychology, but became interested in Asian culture through studying Zen Buddhism, Taoism, Chinese medicine, and Qigong, as well as Tibetan Buddhism. Dr. Daniel Domolesny is a 2015 graduate of the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. He currently treats patients in the Chicagoland area. In addition to his medical practice, he also works as a personal trainer and nutrition coach in Chicago's North Shore. Over the last 10 years, Daniel's passions have led him down different paths of healing and now operates as an instructor for shamanic practices in Reiki. His knowledge and experience have helped to shape the person he is as well as his practice. Hi, guys. How's it going? Doing good, Michelle. Very well, thank you. Yeah, this is very exciting. This is my first in-person episode I'm recording, so oh, yeah. a little bit of a different energy than the uh, computer video. So. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, just a little bit. You heard about them. My background, I've been getting acupuncture for about 14 years now. I lived in Tucson for a little while and kind of got into the student clinic down there just when I was having some mental health issues. And um, it was, I think part of the big benefit of it is just having somebody sit there and listen to you and check in about every system of your body every week like how's how's this going how's this going like it's not just uh you have this disease and let me work with this it's it's just kind of going through like let me hear about your whole lifestyle so it's really shaped a lot of how I think about health in general just getting acupuncture over the years and learning more about it and I took a couple classes not enough to <laughs> know very much at all but uh, it's just always been a big interest to me. So I'm so excited to have you on. And I'm very interested in the topic we have today. We've talked about fertility from a nutrition perspective, just things you might want to build in terms of vitamins and things you can measure from blood tests. But this is kind of a whole different way of thinking about it. So That's great. I'm excited to talk to you guys. So 
I have some questions in in Chinese medicine. There's kind of a concept of building, which I think we're talking about on the nutrition side too. But can you talk about how that might be from a Chinese perspective, like and why how that would tie into fertility? All right. Yeah. Sure. We can do that. Let me uh, let me start here. Um, so building there, there's kind of two aspects of this that as the questions that you asked, I've kind of thought about, and one is building, um, and one is kind of regulating. So in terms of building, I will say it's more like the replenishment of body substances, right? And the body substances could mean a number of different things from a Eastern medical perspective. You're looking at like bodily fluids, blood, and things like that. From a Western perspective, these are all the micronutrients that get lost through overwork, overuse, stress, and proper diet, lifestyle factors, things like that. Um, this is kind of like the foundation of a house, right? The second part of that is then like uh, regulation. Um, if we're going to use the house analogy, this would be like the plumbing and the electrical components to it. And so this is making sure that like all the systems that you have are relatively running well, right? Sleeping well, digesting well, covering well. Um, these are markers of how the body is operating internally. So building is, is literally building creation and then it's regulating that creation. And it's all interrelated, right? There is no separation. There's kind of this magic word called harmonization too. Dan and I were talking about that, very mm -hmm. Chinese word, harmonization. And so it kind of goes with the idea that partially you're going to be doing like supplementation or building, right? And that's, you know, especially in fertility, you're talking about how making sure that the blood is healthy, you know, for being a female physiology and, uh, you know, tonifying and building up the body that way. But there's also this other part, which has to do with more of the effects of things like uh, stress and, uh, and uh, dietary factors and these other things that can build up. Not weaknesses exactly in the same way, but more again, was talking about the regulation side of things. You know, you want to make this, sure the system is regulated right. So a lot of times we end up doing and doing harmonization. What they mean is that partially you're trying to build the person up, and that's the more nourishing side of the treatment. And the other part is more like the regulating kind of part of this, part of the harmonization, which is like trying to make sure the system is functioning right in terms of you know stress and other things. So if you look at like American lifestyle things, right, which is what we're all up against, you know. Part of it will be, you know, people are overworking. Americans are tired. We work really long, hard schedules, and people get more and more depleted. So the Chinese talk about that to overwork. They kind of throw this word taxation around, right? People get worn out, right? And then we get to things like dietary and stress factors. They don't create the same kind of weaknesses exactly, but they create other problems that are regulatory in the body where you want to deal with the effects of things like stress or diets that are you know, maybe almost like too heavy in some other way. So in some ways they're not nutrient, there's not nutritious enough, <laughs> but in other ways it's almost like people overeat and it's like too much of these other factors. So you know, try to like balance out the body, both in terms of like building up and then also in terms of getting rid of things that are probably in some ways excessive in the person's lifestyle. Stress causes a kind of like excess kind of thing within people. And you sort of want to try to balance this out. So that's magically called harmonization, you know? Does that make some sense? Yeah. And so I'm guessing this is important for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, why might it be especially concerning if you're going into this period of trying to conceive or potentially before you start trying to conceive? Yeah. When you get to like the clinical side, I've seen you know cases where if you just run harmonization, you can have a person who maybe has even amenorrhea 
and you just harmonize, which is partially building up and partially just regulating the system. And then maybe the next month, the person won't have uh, you know, uh, a period. And then the month after that, they might even be pregnant. Like I've actually clinically had that happen. We're like, well, okay, that's really kind of a fast turnaround just from trying to like do this harmonization thing, kind of like building the person in part and kind of re-regulating them in part too. Okay. Yeah, so I think it really matters for fertility. I think but that's across the board, though. I mean, you're, you're right what you're saying. It's not just, you know, uh, women who want to be pregnant who have these things that they're facing. It, that's just what people are facing, you know, regardless of what's going on in their life. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, yeah. the idea, the word here, um, maybe instead of building is balance. And so if somebody doesn't have enough, you want to provide them with the substance to give them an equal level. And if they have too much or not enough in a certain area, you want to make sure that it's moving around in the right way so that you can have regular menstruation, regular digestion. And when those things are optimized in the, you know, per person, then it's a more habitable place for, let's say, a baby. And we get to the gory details. So if you get like herbs or points, some of the herbs or points will be like building, right? And other, the, other are the herbs and points. And those are like the more heavy nutritious kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. And other herbs and points will be things more that are moving or regulating in these other ways. So, you know, that's where you kind of end up dealing with both sides of that thing for people. And you get to like the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can go to a health food store and get an herb like Dongwe and that helps build the blood, right? Like you can get that probably a Walgreens or something like that and Chinese herb, right? And that's one side of building, you know, but another side will be, other herbs or other points that are trying to do more of the regulation thing I was talking about. Now it's called harmonizing. <laughs> yeah. Are there things like that you can take without seeing a practitioner or do you always want to know that you have this need to be building blood before you go in and take an herb? Well, that's a heck of a question. <laughs> so with, with, many, with many of the answers um, for these questions that we're ha- we have, is that people have to be looked at individually, which is why it's important to go see somebody even once to get an idea on what they need versus another. So like the idea of blood building can be done in a number of different ways per person, depending on what they need, depending on how good their digestion is, you know, if they're exercising, are they exercising too much, what their work and lifestyle do, how's their diet, you know, so it really kind of just depends on, you know, on the individual, which is not great, you know, when trying to you know address numerous people at one time, but really the onus is on the person to go seek a little bit of assistance from someone who knows the subject matter that they're interested in, and then take that and then go educate themselves a little further and use that person as a reference, as a real life reference, as opposed to just kind of going and grabbing and hoping that something is going to work, which is essentially how we end up treating a lot of micronutrients, whether it be from the Eastern perspective with herbs, or from the Western perspective with nutraceuticals. Mm-hmm. So just having a, you know, whether it be blood testing, if you're going to go Western wise, or if you're going to see an herbalist or an acupuncturist who has knowledge of herbs on the Eastern side to have some reference, some relative subject matter expert, because expertise does matter for sure. You know, if you want to not be frustrated, then it's best to have somebody give you a little bit of advice and what you do with it, totally up to you, but at least you have some input. Yeah, and I would probably, this is a tangent, but say the same thing from a nutrition perspective if you're talking about a supplement. Because a lot of times if you're throwing an individual micronutrient at your system, it might throw everything else out of balance Mm -hmm. if you're just putting one thing. But I do think there's some blanket things we say like bone marrow and liver and like these things aren't going to hurt because they're, they're kind of building foods from a nutritional perspective. That's probably true in Chinese medicine too. If you, if you take some dongwei root 
you know, or if you take some kind of mild ginseng, is that really going to do anything bad for you? Probably no, you know, but there's going to be a limitation, you know, kind of what Daniel was talking about, you know, when you get to the more details of each individual person's kind of presentation and physiology, well, you know, that kind of stuff isn't really going to solve those things, right? They're kind of nice things to do, you know, they're kind of preventative. It's funny because I was just listening to a whole lecture on Korean medicine and the whole deal of like preventative medicine. So it was sort of like, do these things as general health things for everybody. It's almost like public health or something, right? right? So if a lot of people were taking a little bit of ginseng and dengue in their life at safe dosages, is it going to be something terrible? Probably no. You know, but when you get to the like the real details of trying to understand somebody individually, kind of what Daniel was talking about, well then, you know, yeah, that's the professional part. And, and the Western Dongwe is a Chinese herb, but it gets used in Western herb. It's Dongwe sinensis, so it's the same, the same herb. Okay, but it's like one of the real popular sort of herbs in gynecology for building the blood, and in general, sort of helps treat even things like dysmenorrhea, you know, uh, painful menses. Okay. In the right person. And right. I think the other one that probably people use a lot would be um, uh, moxibustion or, or um, mugwort, yeah. which is Artemisia vulgaris, which gets used in a Western setting also, which is just sort of a warming blood tonification. You know, so probably those. But you get to the stuff we were talking about earlier, all of this sort of regulating and harmonizing and all that, that's almost something like a professional has to decide, though, right? Mm-hmm. That's a more complicated set of questions. Right. So you really can't self-diagnose that, right? You really need somebody else to step in and say, okay, here's what the real situation is. Okay. Yeah, so it's like nice things you can do, but then there's a limitation to it. Yeah, because I think there's some, I've heard like Rishi is something that is probably not unsafe. Yeah. If mushrooms <laughs> yeah, are honest about it, yeah. Mushrooms are great. Yeah. Okay. You know, but it comes down to so you know, like even Western wise, B12, vitamin D, these are things that you should be taking, but in terms of efficacy, right? If I'm taking a thousand IUs of vitamin D3 a day, well, that's wonderful. That's not going to move my blood levels at all, unless I'm taking a year after year, and even then probably not enough. So, you know, in order to get like optimal doses you have to they have to be given to you by somebody who knows what they're doing and that's probably going to be double or triple what they say on the label just kind of right so we're talking about therapeutic dosages that should come from a practitioner versus maintenance yes and it's funny in chinese medicine because it really isn't that sort of one thing treats it all kind of mentality just don't have it you have to do a whole bunch of stuff together you know there's a little bit more in the west like okay here's the little magic thing that you do and as far as Chinese medicine, that just isn't the answer they have at all. So you get sort of combinations of things that they're kind of handpicked for that person. And, you know, that's the difference. So yeah, I remember nice for yourself overall, but, you know. Way back, like in my very, my, my class in Chinese medicine, it was like taking something like IBS uh-huh. and yeah, saying yeah. that in Western medicine, we just like lump all these digestive problems into like, oh, here's your diagnosis, but it doesn't really mean anything. And in Chinese medicine, it's like, six different people diagnosed with six, six, uh, or six ty- different people diagnosed with IBS have six completely different, different versions of IBS. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and they'd be treated completely differently in Eastern medicine. But. And when you pull it full circle, actually that IBS thing is like a perfect example of like harmonization. Mm-hmm. Okay. It really is because the body's too weak in the digestive system. And there's also these stress factors and these other sort of excessy factors. So that's like a textbook harmonization thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we touched on lifestyle a little bit, like stress, overworking. Are there kind of general recommendations around exercise, meditation, like things like that that you could kind of give to 
somebody yeah. going into this this period? Yeah, so you know, diet and lifestyle um, are directly related, right? Um, in terms of thinking about harmonization, right? So everybody has different likes in terms of what they'd like to do exercise wise. So I'm not going to say, you know, do 20 squats a day and run a half a mile every other hour, you know, like that's, you know, as a, as a trainer, I, I, this is a far bigger thing, but just for general recommendation, three times exercising per week, whether it be running or weights or yoga or Pilates or whatever, try to give your body at least three times to exercise per week at a minimum, right? Of just physical movement. We just need the movement. We spend so much time seated, right? Whether it be at the car, at the house, at the office, as a student, uh, whatever the case may be, that this is not balanced in terms of what we're designed for. We're designed to move. Most of the brain power is designed to cover the limbs and different aspects of the body for movement. So being still is not what we're built for. So we have to provide kind of some input into the body for just a physical movement so that the blood can move, the lymph can move, we can touch the nervous system a little bit. Um, and then in terms of like mind dynamic, this is where, why yoga is so important for so many different people, because you're accessing different parts of the brain through physical movement. Again, because we're designed to move. If we don't, we lose those parts of our mind, right? And the brain is so plastic, it learns to do a, a specific task. And if we're always adding intervention to it physically, it's a low stress implementation of relaxation, you know, taking us through like kind of like moving and, and breathing together that is just outside of our normal life. So minimum three times per week. And in terms of meditation, because I get to ask this question a lot and I try to bring it up as much as possible. This is a huge, uh, a huge, a huge hole, but meditation is a practice. It's a practice like anything else, like artwork, like music, like breathing, like yoga, like exercise. And I personally believe everybody should be doing some form of meditation, but what that form is, is going to be different for everybody based upon their lifestyle, genetic factors, um, you know, how they are. I mean, I think Eric could probably talk a little bit more on the meditation aspect in terms of... For There's no Asian cultural person you're going to ask me, like, uh, should people meditate? And they're going to say no. Like, that's, not, that's never going to happen. <laughs> no, meditation is wrong for you. Let it go. That uh, ain't never happening in any conversation you're ever going to have. Good ever. to know. So, you know, um, I guess like, you know, feeding off of it, the one thing that like is kind of interesting to me about this is it depends a little bit on how people's attitude is even to exercise too. So if you have, I'll use a little Chinese medical lingo around it. If you have blood deficient female patients, right? And uh, those are patients who may not, technically speaking, be, you know, have anemia or not, but Chinese medicine might still diagnose, you know, you really could have more, the blood could be more supplemented or bill like we were talking about earlier, right? So, you know, that's not uncommon in infertility things for, you know, women to have that problem when you, when you assess. Now, the exercise thing gets really interesting because some patients may be exercising a lot, right? And really kind of like over pushing the body. So that's, again, gets to that individual differences thing. You know, if you have a really sedentary lifestyle and, you know, any, from any like Chinese cultural point of view, our lifestyles are really sedentary, right? You know, and when you really take a step back and you look at it, I can look at my own life too. You can spend like, you get up, you eat, you sit in the car, you sit like for your work, you know, you have a home, you sit on the couch, you know, it's, it could be really sedentary. So what Daniel's saying is you have to have some movement built into that because those lifestyles are really sedentary, mm -hmm. right? And Chinese medical thought that is specifically 
not good for the digestive system, right? There's just some theory around that, right? And the mental overwork isn't good for the digestive system either. So it's almost like the resources that you use to think all the time, which a lot of times is just the pressure of people's works, right? You're just constantly doing mental work, kind of wear out the digestive system. So, you know, you need some movement in there. You need that part, you know, but in some cases you might get, you know, patients who are pushing themselves really hard in other ways, really pushing their bodies really hard. And then, you know, then you run into that other side of the equation, which is, you know, the person may actually be kind of depleting themselves in some ways. And then the building thing we were talking about earlier comes back in again. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you're trying to make up for not moving all day with an hour of CrossFit every night, like yeah. it might be you get to too get, much. Yeah. And someone will have to look at that and say, okay, what exactly is happening for this person in detail? But I think that you do get people who are, you know, the workout stuff is really intense and it's not necessarily bad or anything, but they're going beyond what the body can fully do. And then you end up in that kind of thing where you have to build. Well, and that's yeah. just not balanced, right? You spend most of the day seated or doing medial movements and then you expect your body to go perform at 100% like that is very very taxing on the nervous system itself and then there's no real rest or recovery because then you go home and you're back to cooking for the family or dealing with whoever you got and answering emails like there's no off time so movement is good but you have to have some conscious stillness right which is the balance for what we're doing with all this mental activity uh throughout the day and I, and I think the one thing that I did want to mention is like highlighting what it is that you enjoy doing in your life and to build habits positively around those things. And this makes meditation or exercise or whatever it is easier because they're associated with a positive mindset, with a positive connotation, and you're not averse to doing them. And if we're focused on the things that we are trying to avoid or, or are not so great at and just try to go headstrong right and I'm going to make all these changes like you maybe or maybe it's going to be overwhelming and you're going to say what's why what's it worth why am I doing this to myself sort of burn out doing it or something yeah and you just add you add another layer of stress and that's just not like positive life change over a long period of time it takes time it takes this kind of a slow drip and so to approach it with a little bit of excitement really helps in the long run on, oh, sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> on the meditation side, there's like so many ways to meditate. And I think part of the, you know, the Asian cultural thing is like, well, people have individual differences in their personality. So let's make different kinds of meditations mm -hmm. for different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. So I think in Buddhism, there's some deal like there might be 64,000 ways to meditate or something like that. That sounds like maybe an exaggeration, but okay. I think it's just saying a lot, right? Because there's so many different personalities, you know, but on a very basic level, you know, part of what you can think is, Spending some time to calm your mind. I started all of this Asian cultural stuff because I started doing Zen back in the day for me. And part of that was just, you know, calm down, maybe count your breath one to 10 or something as a very basic thing to do. You know, and you just kind of get used to doing that routine, you know, just calming the mind because our minds are so active through the whole day because it's a chance to kind of like focus them and kind of chill them out. You know, and it's an easy thing to do as like a basic practice. And then the other really interesting point they make as far as like Chinese culture goes is, um, you nourish yourself throughout the day with your food, but if you can take the time to nourish yourself a little bit with your breathing too, that's a nice thing to do as well. And I don't know how that speaks to you, you know, from nutrition kind of point of view, but they kind of make that point, you know. They There's absolutely routes do. For doing that, right? With you know, kind of a whole like praying before you eat thing. Oh yeah, yeah. It yeah. actually uh -huh. gets your brain prepared to. I'm about to take in food. I'm going to start producing saliva. I'm going to. And oh, it starts the digestive yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
system, like it, it starts in your brain. And that's what they always say. I like digestion starts in your brain. And so yeah, taking time to breathe, you know, take three breaths before your first bite and that's going to make a difference. So you do like your three meals a day or something, but maybe you took those 10 minutes just to calm your mind and sit and breathe a little bit. Certainly Chinese medical thought that's like good for your body too. Mm-hmm. It helps the body build up more you know, chi to use a Chinese term and yeah. blood and all that good stuff comes from, you know, that kind of nourishing as well. Yeah, yeah. And what about people who say they do like running as meditation? Like you're, you're jogging, but you're totally just like thinking about each step hitting the ground and turning off all the chatter. Does that, I guess, does that count? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't, you, you have to say all that stuff is good, right? Yeah. Cause it's kind of a mindfulness and movement. So when you get into like Zen stuff again, you know, how I first got into this, but any of these meditation things, Sometimes they make you meditate sitting there, right on the floor, yep. right in your cross-legged positions. And sometimes they make you meditate when you're doing other stuff. So when I would do these retreats, they make you meditate when you were like cleaning up the place, you mm-hmm. know? So you're just mindful doing it, right? And if you, you run running, you can certainly get into a zone better than I could get like scrubbing showers and toilets and stuff, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, it gets you into a space where you're aware of what's going on and there's a zone in that, you know, there's a flow in that. So that's good. Yeah. I love that because that, that makes it maybe a little more maintainable or attainable for people. I think I read a book too, where it was uh, talking about a meditation retreat, but it was like every time you cross under a door, like go through Uh a door, you just take a second to be mindful and you kind of build these little spaces in your day where they're like triggers. That's a dreaming practice. Is it? (laughs) So if I could say something, um, we have all these inputs in our bodies, right? Physical, through our eyes, right? Seeing things, hearing things through our mouth, right? So we have all these different senses and people are different. So just for example, like a student, some people learn through drawing charts. Some people would just sit in lecture and not write anything down and take all the information in. Some people have to constantly doodle in order to hear what the teacher is saying. So we're all built relatively differently, but within the realm of our sense, you know, our tactile senses, our, our senses inside. And so what people should do probably is isolate the one in which they learn the best with and then perform that as their quote unquote meditation. So for people who are very physical natured, running is absolutely going to be a great meditation for them, right? Yoga is going to be a good meditation for people who are physical in nature. If somebody is more digital in nature, then seeing something, uh, some visualization, some guided meditation will probably be better for them as opposed to running around and doing things. If people are very sensitive, then maybe breath work will be a better choice of, uh, you know, a still practice for them because they're going to have changes to their blood pressure, changes to the lymphatic system, changes to their cardiovascular system as they're breathing differently. So to try and isolate what it is that who who are you and be very honest about it can help you to have more success with meditation than for example doing something like eric did which is zen which is very tough and i think a lot of people would sit there and say oh my god i can't stop my mind it's like yeah i know it's very very difficult i mean that's true (laughs) you know it's it's very difficult and so but when you find a way and i'll go back to what i said before with this sort of positive reinforcement and you find something that is inherently who you are and you feel like it's a natural expression of your individuality then you won't feel the stress as much of trying to sit and do something that's so foreign to you and then if that leads to growth in other places well then that's wonderful but you're not trying to put a square peg into a round hole and everything is meditation to be on everything in life is a meditation of some type. 
So if we're running and we're meditating on our feet, our posture, our breathing, and our heart rate, right? If we're sitting and counting our breath, we're meditation, we're meditating on the sensations of the body and the movement of our lungs and our mind while we're breathing. If we're, you know, uh, hanging out with somebody who we care about, we're meditating on the give and forth, the back and forth between ourselves and how we feel and on our partner and how they feel, depending on whatever, you know, quote unquote activities we end up doing in that moment. But it's absolutely a meditation and a back and forth. So everything we do is meditation. It just depends on what type. And so if you're scrubbing, you're meditating. If you're running, you're meditating. If we're speaking and listening, we're meditating on the art of giving, you know, back and forth. So I, I think it's probably a, a, a more advantageous idea to take everything we do as a meditation and not try to just limit it into the meditation cushion or the yoga mat or when I put my running shoes on. Everything we do is that. And if we can make ourselves, you know, more aware of while we do things, then we can meditate all day. And even There's in our sleep. Kind of funny questions. I get a little zen that there's this uh, term uh, samadhi. Because you might wonder, okay, if everything's meditating, that means I'm just meditating all the time. So why should I even bother with this? You know? But um, there's samadhi, and samadhi is kind of this idea like you get into some kind of flow. We've all had this experience when the mind calms down, you know, people kind of even get to flow a little bit more, right? All those sort of more disturbing thoughts kind of die away, right? Mind focuses more easy, and it just feels good. Right. So I think part of what you're talking about with the person who's running is they just get into a certain zone, right? That flow kicks in and they just, it feels good. Right. Yeah. And you can go through the physiology of that too, whatever's kicking in in terms of endorphins and stuff like that. But the same thing happens when people are sitting and meditating too, if we're talking about the meditation piece, which it seems like we are a lot. <laughs> um, but if we're talking about that, then, you know, part of what you learn, which is challenging at first, and maybe, you know, for some people, it's just like sit with yourself five minutes, 10 minutes, just see if you can do it, you know? Uh, but eventually the mind will calm down and it starts to just flow. And then as you kind of train yourself more into that, then, you know, um, uh, it's easier to get in that space. And I think when you get back to fertility, which I guess is what we're supposed to be talking about, too, <laughs> then I think the more calm and relaxed the person is mentally and physically, then that's just another factor to optimize, you know, yeah. all of this. Yeah. I really like that aspect of being able to try it in different ways, though, because I feel like for some people, they'll try the sitting silently as their first option and just say this doesn't work. But maybe if they incorporate something like meditation with movement, then a couple months later, they're able to do the seated, but it's, you don't want to just dismiss it because this one thing didn't work. I mean, you're generally, you know, like people who practice yoga will practice moving first and all these weird ways is bending themselves, then laying down in Shavasana afterwards, kind of relax. And then the seated practice will begin or some form of movement because we want to move first. And so if you're feeling anxious or irritable before you sit down, then move around a little bit. I mean, allow yourself to move and then try and come back and do it again later. Like it doesn't just happen instantaneously. So, you know, patience is a virtue, you know? Yeah. I like that. And then, so with the movement, we're talking a lot about, you know, a lot of people sit all day at work and all the things we said, a lot of our listeners are moms and it probably is, maybe a little harder with young kids to get that. I need to go work out for an hour, three days a week. Mm -hmm. What about something like walking? Like I'm going to take three 10 minute walks during my work day and then walk for a half hour in the evening. Is that, does that count? No, that (laughs) absolutely counts. And I think the one part of that, that you mentioned uh, taking the 30 minute walk later, 
uh, after you get off of work. Because while you're at work, your mindset is still on work. So even if you're walking, as most people are probably going to be attached to their phones, or if you're down, downtown or somewhere where there's a busy, you know, sort of populace, you'd be avoiding cars and things like that. So you're mindful of your surroundings, but not as much on your footsteps or your breathing while you're walking. So externally, we could be walking, but the question is, what are you doing internally? You know, mm-hmm. are you conscious of the foot as it hits the ground? Are you spreading your toes? Are you pushing? You know what I mean? Like all these sort of different tiny aspects that from the outside, I would never see. But from the inside, the person is practicing a meditation on walking. So you could do two at once. You could be getting your exercise in and you could be meditating all at the same time. And for, I think, people who are busy in, in modern life, which we all are, we have to be able to combine multiple modalities together in order to get some kind of benefit in our life. So I agree with you. But is is the walking, would that be enough to like move the blood in the lymph? Yeah. Yeah. Was, so you're not doing a huge disservice by not. You're not doing a huge disservice, service. but you know, don't go home and like carb up, <laughs> right? Like don't bust out, <laughs> you know, like a bunch of white potatoes and say, just wait for a 30 minute walk. Now it's time for me to replenish what I've lost. I, I wouldn't go that far, but you know, walking regularly and trying to get, do something, maybe a, a 20 minute yoga video here and there, if you can, yeah. uh, combined with a, you know, well-balanced diet and some, you know, treatments of some kind, whatever you can get it is certainly better than nothing. Yeah, it's always best to do what you can do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah nothing is is uh, not great. Nothing's wasted, right? <laughs> yeah, nothing's wasted. Yeah. All right. Well, the next question is on mindset again, it, but it kind of wraps it into the fertility piece. Like, if you're going into this space of maybe getting ready to try to conceive, what what? is important around this mindset of like a shift of becoming a mother? Is there anything specific to that where you're kind of preparing to be in this new space or to, to bring this life into the world? Call that Eric. Are you just passing on me? Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, that's a different question the way you phrase it on the sheet. Yeah, for sure. That's sure. <laughs> sure. not how you phrase it on the sheet. Now, okay. So, um, yeah, we talked about this because, you know, we looked at the questions ahead of time. You know, <laughs> reveal of the process. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we were kind of talking about these different kinds of questions of mindset and intention and things like that. And uh, hmm, what we did, what we did talk about, and I kind of know this from watching people and even from my own experience. There's probably something about getting yourself in the mindset of like you know wanting to be a parent, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were talking about this, I was like, well, you know, to be honest, sometimes you almost get the feeling like, you know, there's reluctance in one person in the couple or something like that. It's not always obvious both people want this equally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and I think there's a little something behind like eventually both people getting to the point where they, they both really decide that they want it. And every once in a while you have cases where you feel like, you know, I think that made a difference. I think one of those two were kind of more on the fence about this. And then something shifted. Then all of a sudden, there's like a little bundle of joy ready to happen, right? Because <laughs> something happened in the minds of the people. So I think there's probably some adjustment like that that goes on. That's a subtle point. And when you talk about this, you don't want to have the situation where the one person's looking at the other going, I don't know if you really want this enough, you know, and people are scolding each other. But there's maybe something about that, like really getting yourself into this. Now, for the people who really want it, of course, they're already there, you know. But there's probably something a little bit in that if you get a little bit more into like the more subtle points of this, you know, really getting both people in the mind where they want to do it. Because I feel like that I've watched people where it's like, I think that shifted 
from one of the people in the couple. And all of a sudden this just happened, you know, and you just kind of go, Hmm, I wonder about what that means, but you do feel like that does happen. So that's one set of mindset, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do think I've seen that with women where they're not necessarily ready to give up all the things that you have to give up during pregnancy. And it's like, once they're like, okay, I'm ready to be pregnant. I'm going to start paying attention to my body. I'm going to like be in this space where I'm ready to, to nourish a child growing inside me, then it can happen. Whereas if they're still like been shrinking and like, Oh, pregnancy is going to suck. Like I won't be able to do this anymore. Like it's, it's, I don't know. Just yeah, it's a weird subtle space. psychological point. And I think it's true for, I mean, it's true for the fellows too. You know, yeah. I feel like I've seen it where, you know, maybe it's the male member of the couple who's a little bit like eh, eh, squeamish about it. And then something shifts in him. And then all of a sudden, you know, voila, you know, the magic happens. There's something interesting about that. Yeah, because really I think even cause. like the sperm takes something like 75 days to mature and the eggs mm-hmm. take like 90. So yeah, there yeah. is kind of this this period of maybe building up for the man too where they're... They're getting their mind around what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're getting their mind around it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we talked about, I mean, definitely we were talking about that piece of it, right? That kind of like preparatory space to get into. Yeah. It's good that you say it, that it's true for, you know, both members of the couple. Like, you feel like you've seen, like, women going, okay, yeah, this is going to be a little difficult, a little scary, right? Yep. Yeah, go through all these changes and, you know. So, yeah, there's probably something to that. Sorry yeah. if I uh, no, <laughs> read the no. question differently. No, I just, dude, I'm just turned to be like, okay, I think you get that one. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think we thought about this question. Yeah, well, maybe but, it was a yeah. little beyond your scope. <laughs> In terms of, like, uh mindset of the mothers yeah well i mean i think yeah you're a clinician you watch you know you're like mm-hmm. i wonder where this person's really at with this mm-hmm. yeah and then you feel something shifts and then, yeah so i guess when if we're talking about getting into this mindset or building up from a nutrition perspective or an exercise perspective is there an ideal period of time you'd want to be starting to build this up before trying to conceive yeah, I think Daniel was really talking about the. There's some recommended things around this. You were yeah, about. so it, you had mentioned this, um, and for, from a Western perspective, right? They will say that if you're below the age of 35 and you've been trying for over a year, then you should go see a fertility specialist. If you're over the age of 35 and you've been trying for six months, obviously all this is unsuccessful you know, attempts, then you should go see a fertility specialist from a Western standpoint. If you're talking about regulating the body, you know, in preparation for pregnancy, I would probably give yourself a three to six month window and going, working with an acupuncturist, herbalist, whatever, whoever you're going to see. Um, number one, you want to give that process a little bit of time to work. And if we're looking at uh, menstruation, it only happens once a month. So we kind of need a couple cycles to see where somebody is in terms of balancing that portion out. And you want to give a little bit of time for yourself or whatever they might recommend for you to do and to work on this mindset, you know, uh, and it really depends on how healthy a person is overall. So if you're, you know, feeling not great, your digestion isn't fantastic, your sleep is not you know, so good. You really rely on caffeine to kind of 
drive yourself throughout the day and you know you just don't have a whole lot of extra energy in general to even think about exercise or think about going for a walk or something like that you really should probably start changing your life in such a way that you could support life for yourself first and then after that you'll have a little bit uh, of a better mindset around supporting life for another being because as soon as as you know you both know better than i do when they come, your time is no longer your time. <laughs> so if you're having time create, if you're having a difficult time creating these opportunities for yourself, when there's much less responsibility on your plate, other than yourself or your partner, whatever obligations you have for your family and your work, once you have this other being, they don't care about your schedule at all. So, you know, maintaining your own health, you know, physically and mentally in the beginning is kind of a preparation for when you're going to have much less time so that you have a little bit of a, a buffer zone. So I would say probably three to six months um, before you start. And then when you start, uh, you know, Eric and I were talking about this last night. Um, it's probably best to do it with as little stress with it as, as possible um, or else it ends up feeling like just sort of an act, you know, something, a scientific sort of, you know, implantation um, which is just not so um, enticing, you know, and, and I know Eric. That's kind of like a mindset thing you're going to. Okay, so the one part we were talking about was, you know, if you're talking about giving yourself a time frame before you start preparing, that's kind of interesting because on the one hand, you still could be having your normal romantic life and sexual life. You know, it's really kind of a question of, you know, do you give yourself this window of time before you start having like more expectations? Cause that's actually the part that gets kind of painful, right? Once you start this whole idea, like every month becomes this, okay, this happened or not happened, you know? And so, and on the one hand, is there any real reason why you wouldn't be just, you know, having your normal sexual life and, you know, you know, or do you need this window to prepare on the one hand, maybe, you know, you're just having your normal sexual life and, knows right mm -hmm. but um there is once you start going okay we're getting serious about this then there is that feeling like okay every month we're gonna get this you know this results right and you know it's stressful right so you know i suppose it's you think about it like how you minimize your own stress mm -hmm. yeah and then we were also just you know talking about how you know you still want to have your romantic and your you know sexual life being enjoyable right and it was funny because I was driving up here to do this with my 17-year-old daughter. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was just, she was like, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is that your sex life should still be enjoyable, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and a lot of times when all this pressure builds up, it really becomes kind of more like, okay, we have to do this, you know? Uh, and I was just saying, you know, it's interesting when you really look at it, um, you know, in, in Taoism, right? The, you know, the, philosophical kind of thing that underpins Chinese medicine. There's a whole way that you learn from nature, right? That's one of their basic ideas. You learn from looking at nature, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about it in the natural world, and even, you know, when you look at like just studies in biology, you know, animals, you know, have sex to like have fun and enjoy themselves. And then kids result, you know, <laughs> uh, without the animals even knowing that that's even necessarily going to happen, you know? And there's, you know, even like kind of a biological point of view, you know, and people are more than their biology, but just on a biological point of view, there's a thing that, you know, if, uh, you know, people enjoy what they're doing, the body's better prepared to like actually conceive, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at like, you know, little 
like uh, mice or something, you know, and you get biological about it, you know, the little female mouse tries to like seduce the little male mouse, right? It's actually how it works, right? <laughs> and, you know, and it's all for the enjoyment. But when you actually look later on, you can see, wow, that female mouse's body was just better able, you know, to, uh, you know, physiological changes were happening inside of the body, you know, that, you know, make this easier, right? So it's like one of those really weird questions because there's like a major paradox in this then, which is like, let's do all this stuff to prepare. Let's all kind of try to optimize everything, you know? So let's make sure we have sex at the right time, you know, and all these things. And then we're also saying, we'll be totally natural about it and completely enjoy it. But I guess that's what you're trying to figure out how to balance out, right? Well, I really like your answer because it's giving me insight into myself, like how I phrase that. Because for, for me and my husband, it was like, we are preventing, preventing, preventing. But like we did do this period of, I think it was six months. It was going to be six months, but it ended up being eight because we weren't ready to start trying where I was really um, trying to build up nutrient stores because fat-soluble vitamins can take a long time to Mm -hmm. build up from a nutrient side. But we're preventing, preventing, preventing. And then once we flip the switch of like, now we're trying to get pregnant, it's like you want it to happen right yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. And because um, the what you were talking about with the Western perspective of try for a year and then get help seems kind of backwards. Like, let's, let's make sure everything's okay. But just this emotional side of it. When, yeah. Once you say you're trying and a lot of times you tell your friends that, yeah, we're trying to get pregnant and it, it's, it's this thing where I think a lot of energy goes into this, like, oh, now it's not happening. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but it's, it is interesting because I wanted to plan it like down to the minute. Of- <laughs> <laughs> and it's a deep set of feelings, yeah. right? So I don't want to, you know, to minimize in any way that that's a deep thing. You know, to want to be a parent is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, there is a little bit of a funny little paradoxical thing that gets said, like, let's prepare ourselves and optimize everything, and that's. You know, we were talking about that that's the whole conversation. Let's try to optimize everything. And then on the other hand, like you got to try to enjoy your intimacy with your partner too and enjoy your life because that's part of nature too. Mm-hmm. Well, the other, thing, the other thing here is that I think two things. One, a lot of the responsibility, right or wrong, seems to fall on the woman. Um, so when, when getting treatment, if the man is involved, then he should seek treatment also because he's not abstain from this process as well right if he's not that healthy you know what we talk about like sperm viability the amount the quantity all the other things that are going you know his his own sexual drive things like that like well this is getting better but i think you know the statistic used to be that all the women were getting treatment and like 50 percent of the cases related back to the men and the men weren't even going to get treatment so i think that's getting somewhat better mm-hmm. you know but that's been the that's been the 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 general way this has played itself out, right? And so this just goes into the, this, you know, harpens back into the partnership and that like you're doing this, this whole thing is a process together, not trying to correct the deficiencies of the woman, right? So you both go in and open-minded, open-hearted and ready that you're going to receive treatment to work on yourselves, work on, you know, have a good time with each other. And that throughout this process, hopefully, you know, what you're going for occurs, but that it's not some sort of single person's responsibility, even though, you know, very likely when, you know, she has her, you know, menstruation, her menstrual flow, that's a moment that's for her, you know, and he just has to kind of go, ah, that sucks. I guess we'll try again, you know, try to be positive. But, you know, the question is really, can you see yourself through this? Can you think greater than the way that you're feeling right now? 
And that should be able to transcend you throughout any and all situations throughout these, whether you get pregnant in the first month, the seventh month, the 10th month, or, you know, maybe not at all. Like it's just, there's so many other factors in play that we can't measure or test for, or even be aware of that. Can you maintain that idea throughout? Because ultimately accepting whatever it is that you were given is how you're going to succeed. So if you're given life that you're asking for and you're working so hard for, now you got to actually go through it, right? And be woken up at night and do all those kinds of things that you have to do and deal with them when they're older. And if it doesn't doesn't occur, which is also you know somewhat likely, like would that then what? Like is your life not meaningful at that point? I mean, we have to have I think at least touch on this subject. I mean, this is about fertility, but not everybody has a child, and whose fault is that? I don't think it's anybody's particular fault. We just don't we, we just don't know. Is it the male's fault? Possibly. Is it the female's fault? Possibly. Is there some sort of fate or karma involved? Is it lifestyle? Have we eaten too many plastics or Teflon or whatever? You know what I mean? No, no one's at fault. So you just do your best and try to enjoy the process because life is short. And this window for getting pregnant is also short. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing I was told, I was seeing a different acupuncturist when I conceived Connor, but she said get your husband in if, you know, we, we got pregnant relatively quickly, but, um, that from an Eastern perspective, it's kind of easier to fix those issues than some of the, the female issues that uh, I don't want to say. It's an interesting, interesting <laughs> point of view. I think it's, I, know what I think, I think it goes back to the individual, yeah. uh, as we've been saying okay. so often, it's so individual. If he, so I will give a, a, a story we were treating somebody in the student clinic, a husband and wife, and they had been trying for quite some time and she had all her numbers checked and everything was okay, right? All her hormones and, and her cycle was regulated and she was just going in to get maintenance. But I was treating the husband and come to find out that he was, you know, we'll say pleasuring himself multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. And once I didn't realize this at first. It's not something I think about. I figure we're all, everyone's on the same page in terms of resources, we'll, talk, we'll say. Um, and once I kind of talked to him about this probably was not aiming his intention where he wanted it to be, I think they got pregnant in the following month. Okay. Um, and it ju- he just had to curtail one little, you know, one habit. Um, and that was all that it took. So sometimes like there's just some weird factors that people don't even think about. They're like, oh yeah, this is no problem. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, are there, so from a Chinese medicine perspective, are there impacts on a woman's fertility from taking birth control or potentially not having a cycle for a while or anything around like kind of putting those hormones in the body? Okay, so I'll, I'll start with this. So this is a very um, sticky question, I think, for yeah. a lot of people. So we'll start by saying that uh, birth control in itself is not necessarily bad. Yeah. All right. So we'll start by saying that for some people, it's a way to regulate the menstruation. And for me, what this means is that there are underlying issues that need to be addressed and we can regulate them with birth control, but likely those issues are just suppressed. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that they're gone? No, they're just not showing up. That makes it really difficult because actually when you look at it kind of clinically, it's really hard question is like this patient having problems because of birth control or was the birth control just sort of hiding something that would have been there anyways, you know, and now you see the person and there's, you know, gynecological you know, uh, problems or 
and if you go to the point of like amenorrhea, well, maybe that would have been happening if they weren't on the birth control and the birth control was just, you know, masking that. Mm-hmm. So I think even within our field, you know, it's kind of a, it's a tough question to totally know how to answer it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the other things is that it's not really an arguable point. Menstruation is a natural process, right? And while it's inconvenient, um, it does have to occur. So we can try and, and avoid it through, again, through, you know, birth control. And maybe that's a better choice for somebody at certain periods in their life. You, you know, if somebody's sexually active and they're, you know, in their teenage years or in college and they don't want a child, that's, then, then that's a personal choice. You know, when trying to, you know, conceive later on, does this impact people? I would, again, go back to say this is a case-by-case basis. I've had some people who get off birth control, they're pregnant the next month. And I've had some people who've been on birth control only for a short time and are having a very difficult time getting pregnant. Um, And it depends on the kind of birth control. Are they still having a cycle every month or are they on one of these like seasonal type things where it's a couple times a year? And I I do think that this matters. I still think having a cycle every month is important, even if it's with birth control, but just avoiding it totally changes the way that the body functions hormonally because that's where these birth controls are acting as a level of hormone. So, you know, we're doing something that I'm not going to say or should or shouldn't be done. That's not my, that's not, that's a choice of a, of a woman to decide that. But the thing is, if you're going to do it, then be smart about it. Don't just take the pills and go about your life and just pretend like, oh, these are just vitamins. It's totally fine. No, it's not totally fine. Like go get blood work once or twice a year and see where your levels are at, because that's the part that doesn't get looked at. And so really, I think that from a Western perspective, we're looking at hormonal regulation issues over prolonged years. And how quickly does a body bounce back is completely dependent on that person's lifestyle, stress management, genetics, environmental settings, all those types of things. So if we're going to use the Western system, totally cool, but then use all of it. Don't just use some of it and try and approach it consciously. It's more than a pet peeve. It might be a soap soapbox issue for me, but just the idea, like, I don't know if uh, um, hmm, Western medical, medical culture is always honest with women about all of these issues. There's something that bothers me in that, I agree, you know, because um, I think you you want to have the, the chance to make your own decision, right? I mean, sometimes in class, I have to present this, you know, there's kind of even from a Western perspective, there's this understanding that female infertility might be like 27.5 years. Mm-hmm. The Chinese medical theory is 28 years. So it's pretty close, right? Okay. Um, and uh, uh, do women necessarily know that? Some women do and some women don't. And maybe no one's ever said that. So I can have a classroom where there's students and I would have a group of students, female students, who just never even heard this. No one ever said that to them, you know? I've never heard that. I've, yeah. I would have assumed it was younger, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was reading yeah. something and this woman said, I spent the most fertile years of my life wasted in high school. well okay so then 27.5 and 28 is pretty good you know but at least you should know right so you can start thinking about your life and i think the same thing goes with the birth control question you know um you know at least handle it in the most healthy way in the in the context of what your overall plans and goals for your life are Mm -hmm. right so you have the opportunity to really think about that and that just takes kind of honest conversations and i know the culture is always super honest about that i mean what do you think you'll you know well, better than us. I do. <laughs> I've, been on, I've been on birth control. I'm not anti-birth control. Sometimes it is just worth 
whatever impacts it has on your body because yeah, you need yeah, that. Sure. Um, but I do think that a lot of times in Western medicine, these appointments are 15 minutes and you might not need to go back for a year or two. So they're not, they don't have time to tell you, here's the, the potential side effects. Here's what we might need to look out for. And in a Western perspective, like what we're studying in nutrition, these hormones build up in your liver. So if you're on birth control for 10, 15 years, you might still have hormonal levels a year after you get off of the pill that are still suppressing ovulation. Again, they're yeah, not telling yeah, you yeah, that yeah, yeah. because uh, it depends how how much your liver is able to process these hormones, get rid of them. Like it, it's... You know, it's really interesting about that from the Chinese medical point of view too, because there are some, you know, Chinese medical doctors who talk about women who might be more vulnerable to side effects from birth control. Okay. Right. And Chinese medicine tends to talk about these types and the type that they talk about being vulnerable is drumroll, the liver type. Mm. Right. And so if you have vulnerabilities in the Chinese medical liver system, uh, birth control might be more difficult for you. Right. And sometimes that'll be obvious in things like, you know, you have patients who can take birth control and they'll get headaches or something like that or other symptoms. It just doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. And that might be sort of your liver type person. Okay. One of the tricks for seeing that is, and this is just like a little Chinese medical trick, is if you look at your hands and your knuckles are really prominent, those kind of middle knuckles, that's a little cue that you might be one of these liver type things. So that's like ancient Chinese secret kind of stuff. But, you know, um, they kind of use little subtle things like that to kind of like read what's going on in the body. So that's, you know, the magic of Chinese medicine in a way. But if you see that, then, it, you know, that might be an indication, oh, this is a person who might have a harder time with this. And it might be what you're saying is true, too. If your Chinese medical stuff uh, is saying you're a livery, right, you have that liver type, then maybe you are the kind of person that might carry more of those hormones afterwards in the liver and it might be more of an issue for you. Yeah, yeah I could definitely say that being true. And yeah, so we're not saying don't take it. It's just something to be aware of. If you if you're in this mindset of I want to get off birth control and get pregnant right away, maybe you do want to see, do I have this buildup of hormones? Like, do I do I want to take some time to regulate after getting off the birth control? Yeah. Or if you got on it initially to mask a hormonal issue, maybe get off of it, let the issue represent itself and then work with that before yeah it seems like there's two sets of questions right one would be like whatever might be repercussions of the birth control itself mm -hmm. right which certainly you can treat right and the other might be whatever might be masked mm -hmm. you know, by the birth control by the, by the patient was on it but one was on it and then you know that's something that can be treatable too but you have to kind of know what that's going to be like once once you're off right yeah yeah because i'm a big fan of getting to know your cycle before going into conceiving and that was something um, you know, I did the temperature tracking and everything, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ovulating. Uh -huh. but it was really cool. Cause I got to use that to prevent pregnancy. You know, once I'm learning my cycle before we're ready to get pregnant and then you use it to get pregnant once you, you get to know your cycle, but I, I imagine, body, right. right. Yeah. I imagine that's that it changes once you go off the birth control. So you kind of want to have that getting to know your body after getting off of it so for sure um so okay if you're going through fertility when would you seek help from an acupuncturist versus i think we already talked about a fertility specialist where they say try for a year before right out. we didn't say this earlier but there's also no acupuncturist that will ever say don't come for treatment yeah that, that isn't a thing right <laughs> um and it's not just uh 
marketing or something. There actually is real reasons to get treatment. So we were saying, when would you start seeing someone? It was from the Western side, Daniel was giving the numbers, but from the Eastern side, there's really no reason not to start seeing someone to optimize your health from the beginning. There's no downside to that. Yeah. You don't have to wait. Yeah. I mean, if you're thinking at some point, I want to get pregnant in the next blank, go and see somebody, even if it's only once a month, mm-hmm. once every other month, um, and if you can't afford to see an individual practitioner, then go to a community-based acupuncture setting where usually the treatments range from $20 to $40. Um, and you can maybe be able to do that a little bit more regularly. But going as soon as you can, if you even have in mind of working on your health, and this is, again, mindset, like you're working on your health. You make yourself a healthier person, it's easier for you to get pregnant. And if you have a healthy relationship with yourself, being very honest about your body processes, then it makes it easier for you to accept the things that you might have to work on. And maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's some lifestyle choices that are not always easy to make and don't just happen because, you know, you're going to snap your fingers. It sometimes takes some time to change your habits and make new ones. So, yeah, don't wait. There's no need. There really is no need to wait. Acupuncture is not exclusive. You know, I'm not going to tell somebody, don't get your blood work. I just gave you some herbs. Like, no, ab- <laughs> absolutely yeah, not. not it's like that. <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. Like, it's the opposite. If someone's trying to get pregnant and they've been trying for a couple months, I, I ask them, have you, do you have blood work? Bring it in. You know, mm-hmm. let's, let's look at it and see, you know, just from a curiosity standpoint, can we make some changes? Like, how are these herbs affecting some tangible numbers as they should be? And how is the stuff that you're doing in your life positively affecting you? Because if it's not working, then we need to take a different approach. Like time is short and, you know, we're being paid to help somebody and let's get to work. Yeah. Just to say what you said from a affordability perspective, you both know I went to a student clinic for a long time. Mm -hmm. So that's another option. If there's an acupuncture school around Mm -hmm. there, there's one in downtown Chicago where the treatments are really reasonable and, um, and there are people supervising those students too. So it's not like students are just doing whatever. Yeah. People like Eric. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, yeah, in terms of getting help, I do think like what I said in the beginning where they kind of go through all the questions of when you sit down for an appointment, they're going to ask about how often are you pooping? What does it look like? How often are you urinating? Like, what does it look like? Just every system of your body. So sometimes it's helpful to just get that information about yourself, Mm -hmm. like, like talk to somebody about, oh, I'm not sleeping well and I'm constipated. And it's like, oh, okay, let's like, they might have an idea of what's going on. So it might not even be something you have to wait until I've been trying for X number of months. It might just be something to give you more information about your body. Yeah. It also fits into what you were saying earlier, just learning your own body. Yeah. Right. You kind of understand yourself. And sometimes things are correlated for a Chinese medical way that aren't obvious. Cause you said like, well, I'm not sleeping and I'm not pooping. Well, that actually in Chinese medicine like, might really mean something. Yes. Yep. I've yeah. been there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if the, the GI tract's working better and all of a sudden, wait a minute, I can sleep now, you know? Yeah. Or I was doing a, uh, a lecture with a neurologist out of the hospital and, uh, you know, I was watching his presentation. So he's going through his PowerPoint is to like a lay audience. And he said, well, we don't know why this is, but there's this mysterious thing where, you know, you have uh, uh, female patients who have gynecological complaints. They also have things like irritable bowel syndrome, and they also have migraine headaches. It's a total mystery. We're completely, you know, and I was seeing the audience and I wasn't, gonna, you know, I got an answer. I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. That's obnoxious. But I was for myself, I was like, yeah, you know, that's actually goes back to our little liver conversation yeah. earlier. But the Chinese medical diagnosis, like a, a 
a first year Chinese medical student yes. in the school can make that diagnosis. You know, that's all related back to that one Chinese medical system. So some of these things are connected in ways in a Chinese medical thought process that aren't really obvious for you as a Western person, but it means a lot, you know, from a Chinese medical perspective. I will say that, you know, we ask these questions to our patients and a lot of the times I get, I don't know, I, I never paid attention. I never paid attention. And it really goes to show like the disconnect between ourselves and our bodies and that we try to suppress things when we don't want them, pregnancies and whatever else. And then all of a sudden we want the body to work. It's like, well, why are you not working? You know, like, well, we spent so much time using it as a tool and now we want to use it as a garden. It doesn't give us the flowers that we want. It's like, well, <laughs> that was pretty poetic. <laughs> that was almost like Wordsworth. <laughs> The quote of the episode. There we go. That's, that's your that's your from the beginning. Exactly. That's what we're stuck with using our body as a tool, and now it won't work as a garden. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did want to touch on one more thing that really isn't necessarily fertility, but I've um, been working with Daniel about this for a while. Like postpartum, I know is a time where a woman's body can be really depleted. And I think from just a mom perspective, we feel that, but um, from an Eastern medicine perspective, like are there things you can do in this period to kind of rebuild while you're probably breastfeeding and not sleeping and, you know, maybe not able to feed yourself as well as you were mm-hmm. <laughs> before you had this little, little baby on you all the time. Mm-hmm. Eric, you just maybe start this year. Yeah, we were talking about this, you know, um, Daniel and I have had this conversation. What's really interesting is Chinese medicine has all of this theory of like women's health or all of these things you can do to help support either, you know, before pregnancy, right, preparing for pregnancy, during pregnancy. There's all kinds of different treatments and they've been outlined for like a long time. So it's just as a little example, there's sort of the drop of the immune system in the first trimester, right? And there's old Chinese doctors who would say, oh, yeah, that's a thing. That can happen. So let's do something to help, you know, during that time of the pregnancy, during the first trimester. So here's some herbs you can take, you know. And it's interesting because the herbs that are recommended, a lot of them are real simple. They're almost like foodstuffs, things like cinnamon and dates. And Chinese like to take licorice and fry it in honey so that kills some of the bad taste of the licorice, you know. Makes it kind of sweet. It's so simple stuff, ginger. You know, it's a real famous herbal formula called cinnamon twig action. Right. Okay. And they say, well, yeah, you can just take that in the first trimester. And, and part of the idea is that there's going to be demands on the body and drops of immunity. And it's their way of handling that. So they have real concrete things, you know, or, you know, they have uh, during other parts of the pregnancy, you get to the third trimester. Well, here are things you can do to you know, help maintain the pregnancy if there's any issues. And they have this whole class of herbs they call calm the fetus herbs, which is kind of a quaint name. But it means like, you know, if there's any kind of signs of, you know, uh, potential risk in the pregnancy. There's all kinds of strategies, you know, as well as things that are just trying to nourish the mother. And then postpartum, the same kind of thing kicks in, you know, because there's definitely an understanding that the resources that are going to make breast milk are the things that the mother would otherwise be using to like support her own blood and support her own body. So there's all these strategies. And, you know, again, not to diss American culture too much, but I'm doing it, you know, there's just not that kind of thing. You don't necessarily have that kind of philosophy and you know even people i know from europe right there's all like if you talk to like some people from germany or something they'll be like yeah this is the tea that you drink while you're breastfeeding because it's supposed to help you do this you know there's all that kind of i don't know 
older wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, I mean, again, Dan and I were talking about like part of our goal is to have people have access to that stuff. You know, in this case, we're talking in terms of women's health, but you know, yeah, I want women to have access to that stuff. So you have that, those resources for the people who want them, you know, because there's all of this, all of this accumulated insight and what you can do. Yeah. So is that something you could maybe get before having the baby, like get some support for the postpartum period? Because I, I don't remember, I definitely saw Daniel postpartum and I don't remember how long it took me to go get in. Maybe it was two, three, four weeks postpartum, but whenever it was, it felt overwhelming to drive here and leave my baby and, um, yeah, you know, yeah. like make the time for the appointment. And mm-hmm. this is with somebody that, I have an established relationship with, I can text him, set it up easily. If you're going through this depletion postpartum and don't already have this relationship set up, I just wonder if there's something you can do before having the baby to say, here's something that will probably support you. Yeah, maybe that is, I I haven't thought about exactly that way because normally you're seeing people who maybe you've already had the relationship with. Mm -hmm. That's been more my experience. But that is a good point. So maybe there is something about like developing a relationship with someone that you finding someone you trust, right? Finding someone that you have a good relationship with and having that, you know, maybe before the postpartum period. So it's easier. And that's mm-hmm. good advice, I think. And, you know, from a supplement standpoint, if you, you know, they do ship to the house. So if someone's been seeing you and kind of know where you were before, you can start, you know, by getting some herbs shipped to you. If you can't, if let's say you can't leave the house for whatever reason, then they can have some herbs shipped to the house and they can kind of talk to you and do something over the phone. It's better than nothing. Um, I mean, they're going to want to obviously see how you're looking, but they can get a general idea based on the symptoms that you're, you know, expressing over the phone. So it's important to kind of... Or if they've already seen you. If they've already seen you. But I think there's two questions here. One is if you've been seeing somebody from before, you can certainly use them as a resource after the pregnancy. You don't have to find somebody different. Like you can just reach out to them. But your question I think was more specific. If someone is hearing this and has had a baby or is about to have a baby and hasn't seen anybody, right? How could they find someone? And I think you just call, just make a phone call to an acupuncturist. And then you just set up a time on the phone where they can kind of do a, a, a brief intake um, and then find out and ask you some questions and, and how your pregnancy was and how you're feeling and so on and so forth now. And then maybe send some herbs to you. And then at some point in the future, maybe for a month, at least, you know, you have something on books um, or they could do it video. And there's a number of ways that you can communicate with somebody. I don't think that people should wait, you know, especially mothers. And this is a very particular period. Postpartum depression can be a real thing. And sometimes it's not necessarily because there's hormonal changes, just body substance changes can make you feel bad, tired, you know, like you're not able to do things and you don't feel great because your baby's annoying you more than you probably should be. And, you know, then you get mad at yourself for being annoyed and maybe you find yourself yelling or frustrated. And it's just, it creates a whole sorts of things. real serious question of postpartum depression. There's Chinese medical treatments for like your severe postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And then there's probably the other part, which is just, this is exhausting and I'm tired and this is, you know, difficult. And, you know, you might not, you have a clinical caught up there for the really severe postpartum depression, which obviously can be really dangerous. Right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, even your, your more mild parts of that spectrum, right? If you want to say that, where, you know, uh, that's all worthwhile treating and there's Chinese medicine treatments across that spectrum, you know, for, for the more severe postpartum depression, there's definitely treatments, right? That are in the textbooks and things, right? Yeah. And then there's treatments that are just to support mothers because, you know, it's going to be exhausting and, you know, 
you know, your mood might dip in other ways, you know, not like a severely you know, depressed person in the postpartum presentation, but, you know, where you deserve treatment too, right? For those kinds of things as well. We, yeah. we were talking about this yesterday and, and definitely a lot of these older cultures are quite, you know, patriarchal in their building and focusing on, you know, who should be in charge and whatnot. But it's particularly in the Chinese medicine theory and practice Women's health is a, is a huge issue. It's extremely important, actually. I mean, this is how societies are able to thrive. So these issues that, that get discussed are taught very early on and are outside of a lot of different, you know, wisdoms. For example, um, you know, Chinese medicine absolutely would completely not condone women wearing like dresses or skirts while they're on their cycles during the wintertime or going swimming in cold water or any water for that matter during their cycles. I mean, these are just sort of, you know, some small, like not wives tales, but like old wisdom to stuff that we might now poo poo at, but like, this is absolutely passed on even in the consolidation of all these different traditions and, you know, quote, traditional Chinese medicine now that are given to all practitioners. That's kind of interesting. You know, people from Eastern Europe, which I do, you know, and um, like there's like my teenage daughter was sitting on the cold concrete or something people would scold her <laughs> say oh. don't do that because there's this whole idea they don't expose your body to the cold in that way right uh so ancient wisdom again some of it when you're a western person like is that really a thing but there really is something to that when you kind of like look at it more closely yeah yeah and i like that idea so it sounds like maybe if you establish care with someone in your third trimester, they might be able to give you some herbs, like just for general support of after you have the baby mm-hmm. start these. Yeah, so but if it was like a severe postpartum depression, you need to get in so they can see what's going on. And that and might then, be a dual Western Eastern treatment too, mm-hmm. depending on you know, what that means, you know, how severe we're talking about, right? Yeah. And yeah. I had, um, just as an aside, I had, mental health issues when I was younger and my midwife said, I need you to start seeing a therapist now. Mm-hmm. So you know somebody to call if this comes up postpartum. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just nice. That to sounds have. like good advice, actually. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I didn't really want to, but I respected that she was treating me like an individual and you know, I respected that there's yeah. a risk there. Um so it sounds like just having these people available in your support network for that period. And I'm going to say this because I say the same thing about MDs. Is I think it's okay to like shop around too. Mm-hmm. It's okay to find somebody that you have a relationship with that feels good to you. You know, because you can, I mean, I certainly have seen, you know, Western medical doctors. I'm like, eh, that's like, don't relate to this person. They don't hear what I'm saying. And I'll, uh, I mean, it's not to be mean, but you know, you kind of can fire them yeah. and like find somebody else. So I think the same thing applies to what, you know, uh, you know, Eastern medicine too, you know, you find somebody that, uh, that you vibe with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this goes back to what Michelle was saying in a, you know, classic radio interview. (laughs) We'll, 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 you know, finish with, with how we started. And Michelle said something about like, they listen to you. People go in and and listen to you. And and this part of like what's known as the healing narrative is extremely important because it, it highlights the concerns that someone has about their health. It brings it to the forefront of their mind and the mind of the practitioner in which they're seeing. And they're not necessarily saying, I'm sick, I don't know what to do, but it's just highlighting some of these things that are going on in the body that could absolutely be regulated and don't have to be avoided. You know, so in terms of getting treatment, go now. Um, 
but if not now, better late than never. So if you're in your third trimester, trimester and you've never had acupuncture before, no worries, go get it done. Like it's, you know, it's all right. You know, you find, do your research, ask a friend, you know, you're welcome to email myself or Michelle or maybe even Eric. Um, and if we're not in your area, then we can point you to a place of a, you know, where there's someone who is and who's respectable that we might know, or, you know, friend of a friend, something like that. Um, it's better late than never because approaching this approaching fertility is a very, you know, having a child is an extremely life-changing situation and you want to be as conscious as possible when approaching yourself and your life, but then uh, approaching the life of somebody else. And you really have to start by how healthy are you and how healthy is your lifestyle. So build a relationship with yourself first and then everybody else is just a bonus. Can I screw this up one time real quick? Sure. <laughs> There's <laughs> one thing we didn't talk about. I just you knew I was about to say. No, that's a great way to close it out. Okay, so I don't know. <laughs> as long as it ended up, that's fine. But we didn't talk about the IVF thing, so I thought I should just bring it up just okay. for a second. Um, sometimes you'll be seeing patients during that process too. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing that, like, I think it's good to see that in a dual way as well. If you're getting Western medical treatment, there's nothing wrong with getting, you know, it's actually good to get the Eastern treatment at the same time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what you'll see is, um, you know, work with your work with your person around that from the eastern side too. So this is one of the little tiny points that Devin and I were talking about. Maybe this all gets edited out, but <laughs> but you know, you can see people going through IVF and you're looking at their. You can do Chinese medicine and you can get people whose numbers aren't good for IVF and you can lock them back to where they're good, right? Okay. So you can really get substantive changes where like uh, you know uh, FH uh, FH gets better or something. You know where it was out of the line where you even do an, I, an IVF now all of a sudden there right yeah but there is a chinese medical argument too that like don't just look at the western side look at the eastern side too right because yeah. you know chinese medicine will assess you and even though the western side looks okay the eastern side doesn't look good well maybe you know you might have to wait and i think that's a hard thing to do you know the minute that things look good you want to get it over with almost right and get it done because it's such so nerve-wracking right it's so intense um but there is something to say that you know work with your person and you know uh chinese medicine will give you feedback to you know to optimize that. So maybe that all gets cut. But it won't get cut. Anyways. It won't get cut. Yeah. No, I do like that because the Western medicine doctor is not going to tell you go see an acupuncturist too. Yeah. But you're not going to tell them don't get IVF. Like we're going to fix that. No, absolutely not. No, so no, it's, it's real common to support people through IVF. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do like having these practitioners that are open to let's attack this from as many ways as we can. Like if, if it's mental, maybe you see a therapist and an acupuncturist and a Western medicine doctor. It's and- being an advocate for your patient's health beyond just the scope of your own practice, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, just to, to say what, I mean, maybe this cuts, but this all gets cut, who cares? What Eric was saying earlier about like your healthcare practitioner, like, shop around and realize that people are giving you their advice. And yes, maybe it's very specific advice from somebody who you might need their services for, but there's more than one person who does that service in more than one location. So you can certainly take it under your advisement and then do what you want with it. Right. Absolutely. Like building that, that trust with somebody is so, so important. And if somebody says something to you that you're not feeling, then Go get a second or a third or a fourth opinion. Like people are not perfect and people absolutely make mistakes on diagnosis. So I'm not saying don't believe a diagnosis and go find one that you like, 
Because if you hear the same thing twice, it's probably real at that point. <laughs> um, but it is to say that like you're, this is a capitalist society. So you're paying for it or someone's paying for it. Insurance. I mean, it's cut, the money's getting doled out from somewhere. So, you know, do your due diligence in terms of who you're working with. And if you don't feel like they have your entire perspective in their lexicon of, of treatment applications, then find someone who does. Yeah, sometimes you get somebody who's just really good at treating what you happen to have. It might take you a second or two to find that person. Mm-hmm. You know, people have different skill sets and expertise in any field, right? I just don't think we talk about it from the Western side, too. I mean, I, how's it been for you? Which I'll be fired Western doctors. I have. I did. And I talked about <laughs> yeah. that on this podcast. I yeah. switched to a home birth at 32 weeks. Oh, pregnant. really? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and now I'm kind of in this space now where I don't want to look at a provider on my insurance like I kind of have my network of um the the lactation consultant that ended up diagnosing my son's tongue tie was someone Daniel recommended oh, she's okay. great by the way she is so great yes. and Patricia I had been seeing somebody in a hospital that was like covered by my insurance and this woman basically I mean you know she was nice but she was just like you need a better pump and like that was the solution to everything and it was like I, I'm kind of in this place where I just want to like go like use my network to find people I can trust uh, because you guys all know like you know if I need a masseuse or a chiropractor like a lot of a lot of you have these people in your networks mm-hmm. that you trust and now I'm going through someone I know to find yeah there that. really is something about knowing um, somebody right yeah right so, so yeah. yeah I've I've fired people and the. <laughs> And I absolutely agree with shopping around. It's, yeah. And if something doesn't feel right, it's probably not. Yeah. Um, I, I would trust your instincts on that because if it doesn't feel right for you and your body, especially if they're not listening to you and you say it doesn't feel right, then it's probably not somebody that you want to work with. Yeah, it's almost just an important thing to say, like from no matter who the doctor is, Western or Eastern, like just you have permission to do it. And I don't know if we always feel like we have that, right? Yeah. 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 I agree for sure. All right. Well, I think we're going to close it out, but thank you guys so much. This is awesome. We'll, we'll have to have you back on again if you'd be willing to. Yeah, yeah sure. Have fun. Thanks. So, yeah, thanks were a, a bad lot. interview, as far as say. <laughs> <laughs> Email us your questions at nourishedandnurturing at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at nourishedandnurturing. You can find more from me, Marissa, at confidentlybalanced.com. And you can find more from me, Michelle, on Instagram at Michelle Taggy. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you liked what you heard and share it with a friend. We look forward to talking to you next week.